Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10, questions 27 and 28. Found it in the back of your hymnal, hymnal Psalter, if you'd like to follow along. So once again, come before the Lord in prayer. Triune God, we ask for thy blessing. We ask, Lord, that thou would increase our faith through this preaching. Lord, that it be not a vain exercise, Lord, but that thou wouldst use me to feed thy people. Lord, that through the preaching of the word, using this catechism merely as a starting place, a place to jump, wherein we might find some truth put succinctly, yet always looking to the Scripture, Lord, that Thou would use it to increase my faith, to increase these people here and their faith, Thy children. We thank Thee for all Thou hast done, and we trust in Thee. And Lord, we confess with the ancient church that we believe in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, work among us now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Moving along, this section is on divine providence. Let's read questions 27 and 28 and the answers therewith. Question 27. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? Answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand... He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence doth still uphold all things? Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Dear congregation, we are a Reformed Baptist church. I know some people, some of my friends, do not like that moniker. But nonetheless, we stand in that same tradition of the Reformers and the post-Reformation divines and Puritans who looked back, looked back to the Scriptures, who reclaimed purity of doctrine in differing degrees. And we look back to that. We stand in that tradition. Though, I would contest and this might not be popular, that we finished what the Reformers started with the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Amen. That, we, that we, left off, we, we left off the remnants of Rome, and we kept going. And that's where you can say, this got pretty close, right at the 169 Confession. Ultimately, though, Scripture is our guide. Scripture is not only our guide, our foundation, our one authority. For in it, God speaks. God still speaks through it. God leads his people. He reveals himself in his word. Amen. The Apostle Peter, you remember, 
It's kind of an amazing thing, he says. The Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, who said some of the most ridiculous things to Jesus, who denied Jesus not once but thrice after Jesus said that he would. This St. Peter, upon whom whom's profession, Jesus said, I will build my church, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This St. Peter that then was restored, once hiding in a courtyard, cursing and swearing that he knew not Jesus to some maidens, some young servant girls. Then, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes upon Peter, and he preaches A sermon inspired by the Holy Spirit, empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, which starts the New Testament church. That same Peter, in his epistle, first epistle says, we now have a more sure word of prophecy, pointing to the scriptures. A more sure word of prophecy than than the word of God himself walking among us, Peter? Yes, a more sure word. And so, thus, we found ourselves sola scriptura, upon the scriptures alone. There our guide, there our authority, there our life, the lamp by which we walk. And in it, in this divine book, given to us by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we see a very central and core message all throughout it. Not only about Jesus, but about providence, about God's sovereignty. God's absolute, unquestionable authority and sovereignty over all things. This is a great comfort to us. This is a great comfort to us. It's not just Calvinism. It's not just knowing the doctrines of grace insofar as they explain soteriology to us and the way of salvation. It is a framework, a mindset, a lifestyle a true heart worship that is founded upon God's absolute sovereignty in all things. That he controls all as creator, as governor, and as sustainer of all things. This is a comfort. Why? Because we don't have a God that ebbs and flows with the moon. We do not have a God that changes with our mood. We don't have a God that is taken back By what transpires on this plane of time. But one who works all things for the good of those who love him. And this is the pastoral premise of the Heidelberg Catechism. When we just get hung up on the intricacies of theology. Insofar as we're talking about Calvinism. We haven't gone far enough. And just as the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Was the finishing of what the reformers started in my opinion. So too, if we only get to soteriology, as far as God's sovereignty is concerned, we didn't go far enough either. We must see God as working in all things because he ordains all things and controls all things and governs all things. So with that, we see the Heidelberg Catechism laying out for us in question 27. They define it and they illustrate what that providence looks like. And then in question 28, they apply it. They apply it. So we'll look at three points this evening. Number one, providence defined. Number two, providence illustrated. Number three, 
Providence applied. So providence defined, providence illustrated, and providence applied. First, providence defined. Providence itself is not a biblical word and that it's not found throughout the Bible. It's found in one place in the King James talking about the providence of an earthly king. But by and large, it is not a biblical term that is given to us to define this concept we're explaining. However, the concept, the theology, the truth that is providence, God's providence, is found throughout Scripture. The Heidelberg gives the definition for God's providence, providence succinctly in answer to the question, what dost thou mean by the providence of God? The definition it puts forward is this. It's a simple and short one. The almighty and everywhere present power of God. So according to the Heidelberg, what is the providence of God? It is the almighty and everywhere present power of God. God's providence then is his omnipotent or his all able and omnipresent or everywhere present power or ability. That's what his providence is. His omnipotent and omnipresent power or ability. But this all-pervasive power which we see God has in the scriptures and by the very definition of the term God, if he does not have authority over all things, he is not God. This this all-pervasive power not only exists in God as an attribute, it does, but it not only exists in God as an attribute, but is it but it is demonstrated by him in his acts of creation and his acts of sustaining and governing that same creation, which we looked a little bit at last week. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this in the answer to question 11, which says, or which asks, what are God's works of providence? They answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's a little bit better. That's a little bit more full than we have here in the Heidelberg. And thus, what we mean when we talk about God's providence is not only his innate ability to do anything that he pleases, but also the study of how he does do everything that he pleases. That's what the study of God's providence is. We're looking at not only the fact that God's able to do all these things and anything that he chooses to do, but how he does it. The London Baptist Confession of Faith defines it a little more exactly like this. Quote, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for the which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's how our confession puts it. So in defining God's providence, it's helpful to notice a couple of things. First, the etymology of the word providence comes to us from two Latin words, pro, meaning before, and video, meaning to see. But that can be a little bit misleading if we just do etymology, can't it? It doesn't only mean just to foresee. God's providence is not only his foreknowing of something, or else we have something more like the open theist God, or even the Armenian God, or the Pelagian God. 
or the Roman Catholic God, who can only react to what he sees as coming. He can only react to what he sees as coming. So the, the etymology of providence itself can be unhelpful if we just stop there. Since God not only sees beforehand what will take place, but oversees all things that happen, both in their formation, their coming into existence, and the outcomes that will fall out through them. Ephesians 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says that all things fall out according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That's the Apostle Paul. It's also helpful in defining providence to notice the extent of God's providence. The extent. What is the extent of God's providence? Everything. Everything. All of creation. Both in the creation's coming into existence and in its continuing to exist. God's providence extends over all of that. The extent of his providence is over all things. That's the God of the scriptures. That's the God who we worship. So things not only come into being, but are then governed by him and his will. God is not only the cause of all things that exist, but also their sustainer and their governor. In Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul also says this, For by him, referring to Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things or preeminent above all things, and by him all things consist. I mean, he sustains them. The only reason they even hold together and continue to do anything, all creatures, us, mountains, whatever, exist and continue to exist only by Jesus and for Jesus and through Jesus. Now God also ordains, sustains, and governs all of the creature's actions, thoughts, and desires. The creature's actions, thoughts, and desires. Yea, even from the orbit of the planets, the borders of nations, the limits of the sea, the height of mountains, the number of angels that exist, the growing of the flowers in the field, the aspirations and activities of men, the salvation of sinners, and even to the falling of the smallest bird to the ground. That's what God's providence, his hand of power, his all-pervasive, all-powerful, almighty hand of power that is everywhere at all times doing all things, that's its extent, everything. Everything that exists is governed and sustained by him. That means their actions as well. Jesus Christ is our God, who in his providence is, quote, upholding all things by the word of his power. That's Hebrews 1.3. Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. What then of free will, we might ask, or someone might ask? What then of free will, if this be the case? Does God also govern the free acts of his creatures? Does he govern their free acts? We affirm. We affirm that God also governs the free acts of his creatures. Our confession states in chapter 9, paragraph 1, quote, God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice, that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. So I just said that his 
providence, his power, his governing, even goes over our free access creatures, or the animals, or the angels. But then our confession says that we have free choices here. And the scriptures also put forward both. What are we then to do? Well, as our confession put forward with scripture proofs as well, man's choices are man's choices indeed. When a person chooses to do something, they really did make that choice, and then they really did do that thing. And it was not forced upon them. They are their own free choices. However, they are the free choices of a creature. They're a creature's free choice, not a creator's free choice. And as such, as being the choices of a creature, they're limited to the abilities innate within them. They can only do those things that they're able to do. They have creaturely freedom. So the creature's ability is truly free as a creature. A bird is not without freedom to be a bird simply because he cannot live the life of a fish. Nor is a fish without freedom as a fish because he cannot live the life of a bird. Nor an angel without freedom in being an angel because he cannot do, live a life corporally in a body. So too, we as human beings have freedom as created beings, though we cannot live the life of God. Though we cannot do what God does, we can do what we can do. And insofar as we are doing those things that we have the ability to do, we are free. Our creaturely freedom is governed by God without it losing any of its true freedom. They are simply two different kinds of freedom. And the scriptures lay that out for us. Of course, then you have the fall entering in and, and messing up the ability that is innate. Limiting it, limiting it even further. Second point tonight. Providence illustrated. So that was providence defined. This is providence illustrated. The catechism goes on to illustrate the extent of the providence of God. That, quote, almighty and everywhere present power of God. When it tells us that God's power is that power, quote, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's the extent. Touch on it briefly. Now we're going to touch on it in depth. So they lay out a few different areas to study wherein God's providence is over. First one they give is our agricultures, our economies. The catechism states that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink. All these things are under God's hand of providence. The prophet Jeremiah states, and he said to the people of Israel, he was rebuking them because they had revolted against Jehovah. They did not obey, he says. And then in Jeremiah 5, verse 24, he says, Neither say they in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord, our God, that giveth rain, both the former and the latter, in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Meaning, they do not honor God in their heart or thank him, the one who gave them rainy seasons, the one who gave them crops. They did not remember him, rather they forgot him and rebelled against him. Now, though in our modern age, at least in first world countries, we've been able to use 
our wealth and our tools and our advancements in technology in such a way that we are rarely in need here in the first world countries. There's usually always some sort of food somewhere. Rarely do, we, do our economies crash to the point where we don't have food on the shelves. Still, even though this is the case, we must keep in mind that our food, even though it's manufactured on large scale and it has the wealth of the United States of America behind it, still comes to us from God's hand. It still comes to us from God's hand. He alone is the provider of all things. And as easily as he gives it and blesses a nation that they might have what our nation has, so quickly in the same way can he lay it low and undo all that. Let us then learn to be humble, to be dependent upon God, keeping in mind with Paul and what Paul and Barnabas told their hearers in Asia Minor in Acts 14, 17. They said this, Nevertheless, God left not himself without witness. What is his witness? And that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, fulfilling our hearts or filling our hearts with food and gladness. Food and gladness. So the crops in our field, or rather, the food sitting on the shelves in our local grocery store, are a witness to God's providence. A witness to his grace and his mercy and his love. Who put that there? God did. Who filled our fridge? God did. Doesn't matter what means we use as a nation to bring all that in through agriculture, etc., It's still God's hand that provides. So we need to be humble, dependent upon him. Keeping this in mind. The next place that the catechism says God's providence extends over is our bodies. Our bodies. Both health and sickness are carried out among us by God's providence. That's what it says. And the scriptures affirm this. Physical thorns in our body, our flesh, are given to us by God. They don't just happen by chance. Any injury we sustain, any sickness we get, any deformity we are born with is from God's hand. He governs the state of our health. Therefore, we don't need to fear any cancer or any other diseases or any other deformities. Nor should we trust in the strength of our health. The strength of our bodies, either. All these things are due to God's providential working. He's the one that makes our body. He's the one that knits us in the womb. And he's the one that sustains us and governs us and leads us throughout life. Now, the thorn in the flesh that Paul talked about, some commentators say it might have been his blind eyes. He might have had some trouble with his eyes. He might have had some blindness or some sort of issue with his eyes. Hence, in in Acts 9, when he's saved, the scales falling off his eyes, the mentions he makes of his bodily ailments in the epistles, and also to the Galatians saying, you loved me so much and now you've left. You loved me so much that you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So some commentators say it was that. Others say it was more of a spiritual thing. Either way, if we take it as the former, that it was more of a physical ailment that he had, we see that Paul dealt with it with faith. Looking to God, regardless of what was going on. Knowing that it was God that had given him this. A thorn was put in his side by God, he says. A thorn was given me. So we should know 
that health is fleeting and that we all will one day die. We all will one day die. Our bodies will fail us, but God will never fail us, ever. Therefore, let us see to it that we invest more into the things of the kingdom of heaven than we do into our temporal state. This body of clay, this flesh that we long to put off that we might be clothed with immortality. Let us see that we sow more into the kingdom of heaven than this body. Whether they be good or bad, because we can sow into and invest time into thinking about how bad our body is and all the ailments that we have and the sicknesses that we have and the pain that we have and how we're aging just as much as we can about trying to be strong and healthy and fit. Both are a snare that we must avoid because our bodies are given to us by God. We should steward our bodies well. We should thank God for the health that we do have. But we should never look too much to the negative parts of our body nor to the positive. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. There is a great reward in giving ourselves unto godliness. There's great reward. Let us be sure that we apply ourselves unto attaining it. The Apostle Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, namely verses 24 through 27, he says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So all these people are running. All these people are participating in the race, but only one gets the prize. He says, so run that you may obtain. Run as though you're going to be the guy who wins it. But what race is he talking about? He then goes on and says, and every man that striveth for the mystery or the mastery is temperate in all things. I mean, he disciplines himself. He gives himself to understanding and to knowing all of the ins and outs of his particular sport that he could be the best at it. That way he might win the prize. Now they do it, he says, to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I, theref- I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body, I discipline my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So Paul, saying his body was merely something that he kept healthy, that he worked hard to discipline so that he could serve God. That should be our goal in viewing the body in light of God's providence. That our body, whatever state it is in right now, or will be, or has been, is by God's hand, God's providence, God's governing and sustaining. And he will guide it through. Because our body houses our soul. Our body houses who we are, and we will one day be reunited with this body, though glorified, So we must see it as in God's hand and not our own. The next part that the catechism says God's hand goes over, his hand of providence, is our societal standings. Namely, riches and poverty. Riches and poverty. Riches and poverty, whether we're rich and have sufficient to not only clothe and feed ourselves, but others as well, or being poor and beggarly, are also within God's hand of providence. Just as soon as Job was rich, he was destitute. And both his richness and his poverty came from the same source, namely God. 
Proverbs 22, verse 2 says, The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The rich and the poor stand on the same level before God, is what that says. For he is the maker of them all. If you have sufficient in your bank account, it is because of God. He gave it to you. If you are destitute, his hand is over that. His providence has seen it good to put it the way it is. Therefore, we must use it for God's glory. Now, again, we must use means. God has given us means, and we go back to the free will and to choice. We must work to discipline our body, to be healthy. We must work to labor to to have enough to feed ourselves and our family and our church body and our community. However, all those things come from God alone. It's both and. It's a resting in God's providential hand and providential care as a father for his children and also a working as though it were up to us, like with salvation. Paul says, so run as though you were going to win. Then he also says in Philippians, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So it's both. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Therefore, whatever our standing in society may be, let us praise God and use all that we have been given for his purposes alone. Remember Job in Job 1, verse 21. After all that he had had been taken. After all that he had had been taken. And he was a faithful man. He was a righteous man. He was upstanding in the eyes of God. His wife then said, what are you, what are you holding on to life for? Curse God and die. He says, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That should be our mindset, our heart, our prayer when it comes to our finances, our physical possessions, whether they be great or very small. The next thing the catechism places God's sovereign hand of providence over is all things as our Father. As our Father. Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, places our understanding. He seeks to place our understanding of God's almighty providence in the context of God as our Father. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, Verse 29 through 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? Meaning two of the lamest birds sold for basically nothing. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Than many sparrows. What could be a greater comfort? Because you notice the word he said there. The person he's talking about. Your father. None of, none of these little worthless birds fall to the ground without your father. Not even a hair falls on the, off your head onto the ground without your father. He doesn't just say without the great and all-powerful God, which our father is. But he says your father. That's the care. That's the comfort that we're given here. God's hand goes over all things in existence. And particularly, we should see that as Christians, as coming not just from a deity, but as from our Father. Third point tonight is providence applied. So we saw providence defined, 
Providence Illustrated, and now Providence Applied. In question and answer 28, the catechism applies to God's providence to our hearts. It applies God's providence to our hearts, to our edification. Question 28, what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence doth still uphold all things? What good is it? Why are we studying this? It's asking. What's the point of going in depth here? Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Let's look at a few of the points they make. A few of the points they make to apply. That we should be patient in adversity. If you would turn with me, turn with me to the book of Romans. Book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Apostle Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Catch that? We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, and due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, perhaps, For a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In adversity, patience and adversity is what it tells us we should learn from God's providential hand. His sovereign hand, governing and sustaining all things, is patience. Why? Well, here it says, In verse 3, we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. The trials which we endure, if we know that they are from the same God, the same God here that gave us Jesus Christ, that sent Jesus Christ when we were yet sinners to die for us, that same God who brought us to peace with himself is governing over us. Therefore, our tribulations, our trials, our hardships actually work patience for us. And we can be patient in that knowing that he is a God who loves us, who sustains us. And later on in the book of Romans, that he works all of these things for our good, for our good and for his glory. That's where we get the patience. That's how we can be patient in tribulation and trial and poverty and persecutions. Whatever that tribulation may be, that's where we get the patience to endure it. Is that we know that the same God that justified us and brought us to peace with himself. We were once enemies with God. Now we are at peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is governing all these things. That he is the all-powerful God. He is the almighty. 
and is now our Father because of Jesus Christ. Because in the same book again in Romans 8, verse 15, that we are given the spirit of adoption as children, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You see the intimacy that is linked here. The tenderness that is linked here. It's not just a transaction taking place between some deity and its people. It is the supreme deity, the only deity, God Almighty, the triune God, who acts towards us, who condescends to us and adopts us as children through Jesus Christ as a father. That's where we see the ability to be patient. That the same God which gave us Jesus Christ will work all things together for our good. That he who saw fit to give us Jesus will not then withhold anything else from us. That is the but God. And this is just kind of a side note. Because I can never read this verse and verse 8 or Ephesians 2 when I see but God without thinking about this. And this ties in with suffering under things. With trusting God and his providence. Is that whenever you start saying, yes, I know God is these things. Yes, I know the Bible says this, but you've gone too far. The only person who ever gets to say, but, is God. Amen. But God does. Not but we do. Yes, I know God says to trust him. Yes, I know God says that he's saved me. And if I believe upon his son, I'll be saved. But, nope, you've gone too far. You've overstepped the scriptures. Amen. It's but God. And what did that God do? That God adopted you in Christ to be your father and not only your God. We are also not only to be patient in adversity, but thankful in prosperity. Thankful in prosperity. All good things come from God. We know this. But these good blessings often come with the temptation. The temptation to trust in them rather than in the God who gives them. So we must be thankful in prosperity, just like we're patient in adversity. Thankfulness is the key to overcoming much temptation in the Christian life. Being truly thankful. If you are thankful to God for the people he's put in your life, it's very hard to hold a grudge against them. And if you are earnestly praying and seeking and meditating on the scriptures that tell you to do that, to be thankful for those in your life, to be thankful for the things you're giving, you're going to have a much more difficult time begrudging the people around you or begrudging God for those things. So we'll have great things given to us. Some of us much more than others. Some have much more wealth than others. Some have much more preferable circumstances and providences play out in their life, and we envy those people sometimes. We desire that. But if we're thankful, we'll avoid the snare of envying them and not trusting in God and being thankful to God where we're at. And if we're thankful to God, we also won't trust in the riches that we have or the good providences that we have. I'm one of the most blessed men I know. I really am. And the temptation to trust in those amazing blessings that I have is always there. But when I foster and cultivate thankfulness in my heart to God, realize that these things are from Him. I have to take a step back sometimes. And we all do, from the great blessings in our life, to look at the God who has given them. If we only look at the blessings, our vision is tunnel vision now, and we're just thinking of the things that we have, 
whether we wish we had more or whether we're happy for the things that we have, and we forget the providence of God, the God who rules over these things, the God who has dictated and given us those things and decreed them for our good and his glory. Moses warned the people of Israel of this very thing. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 and 11, he said, To be mindful that when thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. And he goes on to list a bunch of bad things that will happen if you do that. We must not be greedy over those things that we've been given. Because they've been given to us by God's gracious providence. Rather, we are to thank him and use them for his glory. We are to be mindful of 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where the Apostle Paul tells us, In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Next and last, we are to have filial trust in God and all things which befall us. Filial, meaning childlike. Childlike trust in God for all things that befall us, both good and bad. We must be as the Apostle Paul, who learned to be content and thankful in all things, whatever state he was in by God's providence. Whatever state he was placed in by God's providence, he had learned, he had studied, he had given himself to be content in all these things. In Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, one of the most abused passages in the Bible there at the end. He says this, Not that I speak in respect of want, not that I'm saying I need something, for I have learned, and whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere, in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. You can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So when you hear people quote that about football or whatever else they're going through, remind them it's about learning how to, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, I can be shipwrecked through Christ who strengthens me. I can be beaten with stripes through Christ who strengthens me. I can abound through Christ who strengthens me. And I can be abased, like Job was, through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's the context. As we know, Jesus himself walks us through what all this should look like. In Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, if you'll turn there. Matthew 6, Jesus tells us what this filial trust in God and all things of God's providence should look like. Matthew 6, verse 24 it says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or earthly things, or wealth. That's what mammon means. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment, food and clothing? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Again, the, the Father language Jesus is teaching here in his kingdom proclamation. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, or worrying, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What a hard lesson that is to learn. What a difficult lesson. But if you see God's providence in all this, that's the key to Jesus' teaching here. The reason you can and should seek the kingdom of God first is knowing that all these things will be added unto you. I mean, they'll be taken care of by God, who is your Father. Your Father, which is in heaven, will see to it that you have your daily bread. We'll see to it that you have all things necessary for this life and the power for godliness, as we know from the rest of the New Testament. Thus, dear church, in beholding the providence of God, the providence of God over all things, which is towards us, we can confidently answer the question, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Like this, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Part of gratitude is trusting in the providence of God, his sovereignty, as a father towards his children, and not just as a sovereign, amazing God that saves sinners sovereignly and without their will being introduced at all. It's not only that, and that's not primarily it. Calvinism, the core of Calvinism there, is to see God as your heavenly father. It's to see God as your heavenly father, and therefore... In light of God's grace towards our guilt, we have gratitude that we might be willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before thee as thy children. Thankful, Lord, that thou dost work all things for our good and thy glory. Lord, give us faith. Lord, we believe, help us our unbelief to trust in Thee that Thou not only knowest what Thou art doing in all things, but also that Thou art doing it for a purpose and a purpose of a father towards his children. Lord, help us to partake in that will, to embrace that will, to fulfill Thy will on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, that we be willing agents, be willing children, eager to serve our Father in heaven. God, we thank Thee, and I pray, O Lord, that Thou bless these Thy people as we go forth the rest of our week to gather again on the Lord's day. Lord, we long for it, we crave it. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Congregation, please stand for the singing of the doxology and the receiving of the benediction.